0: Body. this is two guys five movies this is one of your co-hosts chris gaspere this is frank Sullivan. uh tonight you are listening to episode 123 and we are covering the next top five crime films of the 1970s this is a sequel i guess to the original list uh, of the top five crime films in the 1970s which was episode 27 frank march 2019 so it's been two and a half years since we did that episode and i've been pushing for a sequel for it for since then because it was always one of our more popular episodes Um, so in that episode um, we had covered the day of the jackal uh, killing the chinese bookie clute the french connection and the friends of eddie Coyle, which (laughs) is a fabulous list um And I I have a feeling this is our last time specifically covering the top five crime films of the 70s, only because I did research, and I might have missed a couple, but we have also talked on other episodes, Frank, about Chinatown, Across 110th Street, The Honeymoon Killers, Dog Day Afternoon, Dirty Harry, Shaft, La Circle Rouge, and just last week, Mr. Majestic. Um, So I think after this, it's like we're not missing a lot, and they would just have to come up naturally at that point. Um
1: mm, yeah, maybe i
0: I have another list of five, yeah, yeah they call they call me Mr. Tibbs that
1: might
0: be honest. I know I, I wasn't making a joke I right. no I'm
2: serious um, I mean, I don't want to like, spoil anything, but I think there's um,
0: yeah, there's there's I at least two that I definitely
2: know, but yeah I think there's five more in there, in there. but you know you're right. just call like, we'll come about, about it naturally. see um this list this week like in in retrospect like after watching them I and i've watched all five of these movies now in the past two weeks so they're all pretty fresh um like really just like fantastic I, I don't know i don't know what it was about the 70s and just counterculture slash crime slash i don't know whatever thrillers or whatever that they just some really great stuff this the second so
0: yeah i mean Like, going through this, it's, like, you know, my fascination with, like, 40s crime. Um, But we've talked about so many of these movies, and it's, like, this. I mean, it's not anything revolutionary statement, but it's, like, certainly the 70s rivals, like, that old noir stuff, and maybe surpasses it at times. Like, if you go off to the crime stuff that, like, we wouldn't consider... They're crime films, but they're kind of more gangster films. And once you get into the gangster stuff of this decade that has a lot of really good stuff, like, I don't know. I mean, the 70s might have 40s beat overall in terms of quality. Certainly inventiveness, I think, in filmmaking. I mean, you know, I that, So
2: Yeah. Um, like, I'm always, I'm always going to go for the 70s over pretty much any any decade in terms of like, overall quality of film.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. I know. Um but yeah, it is just I mean, it's such a interesting and just chaotic time too. Um, which certainly I think comes up in a lot of these movies. Um but um all right, so I say we just go ahead and get started, especially if maybe you have another list in you, maybe another two and a half years from now.
2: Yeah, let me let me just say this
0: quickly is that
2: like I, I think that and you, you you kind of alluded to it just now, but I think this shows just, like, the sheer, like, breadth of topics that can, like, influence, like, crime films in general and how all of these films kind of, like, even though there's some of them are sort of similar, they touch on different aspects of, I don't know, like, maybe our, like, nationwide, like, malaise coming out of Vietnam and, you know, pre-Reaganomics, like, the boom of the 1980s it's just um I don't know, a lot of really great like subtext to these movies and
0: uh and and i don't think i'm going to spoil anything because people will have already read like what these names are i'm not going to guilt the names but just think about the genre like you you basically this list covers five different types of crime pictures right yep. it is it is the kind of like thriller um then it is the heist yep and then it's the hard-boiled detective then the gangster um and then like the kind of i guess thrill kill um lovers on the run yeah yeah yeah. also Um, like true crime sort of sure crime films this is based on um
2: you know an actual series of killings so yeah
0: so it's a it's a a diverse list inside of like the broader category and it runs
2: the gamut from like neo-noir to Mm -hmm. almost like cinema verite to kind of like I don't know. Like Silk stalking, esque like thriller. I mean, there's <laughs> a lot of you know.
0: speaking of which, I'm actually I'm now I'm more I'm more excited now to talk about this list than I was. Um so your number five on your list is 1971's Play Misty for Me. It is directed by Clint Eastwood. It stars Clint Eastwood, it also stars Jessica Walter, Donna Mills, and John Larch. It has an 84% from critics and a 72% from audiences. You want to tell us a little bit about this movie uh, and uh, why you put it on the list? Uh, Yep. So
2: um, Clint Eastwood looking his um, especially grizzled self for uh, 1971 um, plays a popular, um, I guess, Bay Area um, disc jockey uh, who plays weird like fusion jazz kind of um on the overnight's uh KRLM, or krml uh radio station um he has a regular caller that calls in and requests to have a song called misty played for her um hence the title of the film um so while hanging out at his local bar um played by jessica walter uh sitting next to him so him and the bar keep like pretend to play this really complex game with these, um, what are they, like, wine bobble stoppers or something, kind of, or mm. that are just in, like, a box, like, on the side of the bar, so um, she becomes intrigued and she comes over, and um, he basically uses, like, parlays that, like, trickery into going to bed with her, um, but she then reveals that she was kind of playing a game with him knew who he was and was the person that calls in to request Misty. Um, So, as a real scumbag, and I don't think that he hides the fact that his character is kind of a scumbag here. um, He uses, like, her starstruck, whatever, infatuation to sleep with her. Um, And basically says, you know, I don't want to get serious. I'm not looking for anything. You know, we're just having fun. And she's like, oh, of course. Like, I'm not trying to get serious either. So, they have sex. And the next day, she shows up at his house with a bunch of groceries. Um, and even though, like, it's a red flag, his libido and ego still allows him to let her in and think he's in control of the situation. So she then cooks some dinner, and they have sex again. So then an the ex-girlfriend comes into town. So now, of course, scumbag, scumbag, um, Lynn, wants to, like, break off the, you know, good-time sex with, um, you know, this fucking insane barfly. Um, but she's not having it. So, you know, in typical thriller fashion, although I think that being like early 70s, this is probably maybe not an inspiration, but kind of predates a lot of the stuff that we saw in the 80s and 90s that's very similar in tone. Um, she doesn't want to let him go, so she starts to stalk him and she costs him a job at like a prestigious Los Angeles surfing. Um, ends up, physically like assaulting his housekeeper with a machete and putting her in jail um so in some sort of character development because he really is in love with his ex-girlfriend he comes clean and tells her about this crazy woman she tried to kill herself in my house but she's in jail so they start to like build the relationship but she's gotten out of jail and then um There's a twist that happens that I don't really want to spoil because I think that it's, like... Like, the first time you see the movie, I think it's actually a pretty cool, like, scene, like, this twist that happens. But ultimately, she assaults them, and she ends up getting thrown off the cliff against the Walter, um, psychopath character, um, and dies, you know, and that's her comeuppance for being, like, a crazy stalker. But, um... So, I... It's a weird movie. It's 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 Eastwood's directorial debut. Um and you can tell that he's very influenced by like to me it feels like he's influenced by people like um Antonioni and uh probably like a lot of the French New Wave stuff, um, just because he's very um very loving in like the way he shoots things and he shoots certain things like like there's one part where him and his um his co-worker at the radio station are at like a, like a jazz or what would you call it? like funk festival kind of not really funk, sure. mm-hmm. but, yeah like postmodern jazz festival. Yeah, it's jazz festival yeah. where they're recording like the music of the performers so they can play it on the radio station because, you know he's a hip a hip white guy that's into like jazz music and it's just like it's a really almost like unnecessarily long scene yeah. and I guess like the point is that it's setting up what comes after it and showing how long. They're there and like how invested he is and like his job or whatever, but it still is kind of like it's one of those things where it feels like something <clears> out of like maybe like like Terrence Malick do something similar in um, Medium Pool or you know like Antonioni and like Zabriskie Point like has yeah or similar to that. And I, I I think that's Eastwood being influenced by like that new wave of directors. Um, so it kind of fits like with the whole '70s. Um
0: and that was actually filmed at like a real um jazz festival. So they probably wanted to make sure to like use that footage considering yeah, it was actually understood. shot there.
2: That happened a lot. Like you see, um I'm trying to think of a really good like parallel to this. Um, but there's a scene in some movie, I can't remember. It's like the loving spoonful or something is playing and like the scene goes on for a really long time while they watch the loving spoonful play. Um or like in um Cream in a, a um, blowout or blow up where you know, um, Hemmings goes to the club and Cream is playing, and it's
1: yeah, mm-hmm. a
2: really long, extended like scene of him like with this band while things are happening. And um, anyway, yeah, it, it, remi- with- it reminded me most of Medium Cool when I was watching it, like probably out of anything, yeah, well, because of the way he, he films it, it's like yeah. very like Haskell Wexler, yeah, like long shots, and yeah. you know the camera's not, like, fixed on anybody. Like, it kind of follows them loosely through the crowd, but mm-hmm. still, like, sort of, like, watching everybody else in the crowd and kind of making it feel more, I don't know, like, freeform as opposed to, like, tracking shots or whatever. Sure. Um Jessica Walter, best part of the movie, um, her unhinged, um, love-struck, like, narcissistic psychopath Pretending to injure, like trying to commit suicide, just to force him to stay with her. And and, um, God, like the one of the most uncomfortable scenes in like any of these five movies. Um, So Eastwood is at a um, bayside restaurant with this executive from a prestigious radio station that he's been offered a job at, Um, and she's basically said, like, look, like we have other people to interview, but. You're by far the best candidate. You can consider this job yours. Um, and Walter like just shows up and starts screaming, like, "God, she she couldn't get laid in a lumber mill. Um, this is this this old hag that you're throwing me over for. Like, what is it? Are you is that your kink? Are you a freak? You you, you like them young? Um. Anyway, it's there's there's a lot of like crazy shit, but um, it's it. I don't want to call Eastwood wooden, but he's affecting, like, Dirty Harry. Well, not even Dirty Harry at this point, but, like, he's affecting, like, the man with no name a little too much at times. Um, And he really comes off as, like, an egotistical asshole because there's a scene after the housekeeper gets assaulted where, um, where Eastwood has the cops there, and the cops, while not sympathetic, are still, like, willing to hear him out. And, you know, he basically, like, could have just kind of suppressed his ego a little bit. Because the thing is, he doesn't want to get out that someone tried to kill themselves in his house because it would look bad for him. But he, he also doesn't want to come off as, like, a philanderer, I guess, possibly. But he could have prevented a lot of things if he just come to the Look, this woman. Like, this is why she's doing it. I think she's dangerous. But instead, he doesn't. It kind of, like, in the long run, allows her to not stay in prison for a long time and eventually leads to the death of the one police officer you know the events at the end of the movie but um not not the best movie on the list but still pretty impressive for a first-time director um especially okay. for somebody directing himself i think which is probably a really difficult thing to do um it's got some pretty decent lines in it although it is like a little hokey at times but um briskly paced and i again i think it has a pretty fantastic twist um in the last like twenty minutes of the movie. Um I absolutely did not see that twist coming. Um when I watched the movie for the first time. I and mean, granted I was pretty young when I saw it, but like even this time watching it like knowing what was gonna happen, it still is like a cool reveal moment when you um figure out what's going on. So yeah, I know, just an enjoyable um romantic thriller. Let me tell you though, there's one scene in this movie that's absolutely like unconscionable and that is um i what's the actress's name that plays birdie or whatever or Abby or what's her fucking name toby yeah toby donna mills donna mills so there's a scene where donna mills and he's sort of walking in the woods and they just like have sex on like this mossy bank, kind yes, of like in yeah. this disgusting like mildewy pond, and then like on this moss. Yes, and it's supposed to be like I think, like this kind of like hippieish return to nature, like <laughs> love. You know, this is like this pure, like almost Garden of Eden, like romantic love that he's feeling, and and I, I understand like that's I, I'm almost positive that's the symbolism of it is like him like basically like. Being born anew with this woman like naked in nature and like he's finally turned the corner from being this like kind of like philandering playboy but dude it is uncomfortable and weird and neither of them looks like they're particularly enjoying themselves in it mm. I don't know It's um, and it's really long it's kind of like the sex scenes in the room sort of where it's like you don't see any nudity but Clint Eastwood is like rubbing his naked body against this attractive woman Who's also naked, so it's obvious that like the director put himself in this situation where he could like basically fornicate with this woman on camera without like actually showing like graphic nudity. It's just really weird and off putting. So but the rest of the movies.
1: The
2: Cage. Really That's
0: Nick Cage movie right there.
2: I didn't want to say it quite that way because Nick Cage is the producer usually, so he yeah, still has the right. director, like Sorry. but I mean Clint was the one saying. Yeah. You need to point that camera right here at my supple buttocks, or well, right. I
0: grind them into her. Right, got that bow? this. <laughs> yeah. I, I'll be honest. I think I have a slight. I'd never seen this before. I, I thought it's really well directed for a directorial directorial debut. Um, and I, a lot of people will like you know, like audience members, uh, found it kind of like boring or outdated. And well. I. I find it outdated. Like, I mean, look, I think it's better than most of that '80s shit that you referenced. Like, I, I would, I thought it was so much better oh, than something like Family Traction. One hundred percent.
2: I'm, I'm just saying that that's, you can see where. it was.
0: Oh no, no, I understood. I wasn't saying that you yeah. said that. I, I'm just saying that, like, I, I grew up watching those things and hadn't seen this, and it's like this is so much better. But at the same time, it's like I don't think I think Eastwood is. The end of this movie when he kills her, right? Yeah. Is like laughable almost. Like, like the actual like throwing off the cliff scene. Like, I don't think it's dramatic, like traumatic or anything like that. It's like it's played for a laugh line. The music that's playing, it makes it like almost funny. Um, That it's like she finally, it's like she got her comeuppance to some degree. Right. Is how I took it. And it's like this little like, he walks out like he, like, uh, like with, or she's like holding him up, like, and he's limping because of his wounds. And it's like, like, there's this like little upbeat thing after, like, you know, he, he kills her. And it's like, he obviously sympathizes with this disc jockey character and like thinks that this woman's like just out of her mind, which she is. But, <laughs> um, there there's not even a touch of like, uh, uh, melancholy to this ending like that this is bittersweet it's like he's just the the hero like who's a scumbag who killed this woman that he mistreated really like um and gets to walk off with the other woman that like he kind of like has mistreated in the past but not recently i guess um I.
2: So let me I, I, let me the, say this: the, because- the ending,
0: the ending, of this movie ruined it for me because this is like this woman is obviously somebody. They didn't talk about the stuff. Then this is somebody that obviously has borderline personality disorder. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and like it's like a real mental illness, and it's like, Haha, like you know, dumb bitch kicked her off to a uh, kicked her off a cliff. Like, isn't that funny? Um, I, it just it, it, in that way, it's really outdated to me. Like in terms of like the the. The, the tone of the movie, um I think. But um so while I like the movie, I thought it was well directed. I thought the performances are great. I think Jessica Walter's good. I even liked Eastwood maybe better than you did, obviously, a little bit when you saw him wooden. Um, I thought he played this creep really well at least. Um and but yeah the ending just didn't stick to me. It just kind of put me off a little bit um overall. Yeah. Yeah no, no. I I I
2: agree with you about the ending, and I just think that it's... It's up the time. You know, like, okay, so, yeah, compared to... Fatal Attraction is a really good like comparison point to this movie. Even... What's Fatal Attraction? Like, 86 or something like something that? Something like probably? that. 86, 87, something like that. Even 15 years later, it's so much worse. You know, like... The portrayal of Glenn Close as the... Gra- like, like why, why couldn't he just have that tryst? You know what I mean. Like, mm-hmm. she's the one that's taking it too far. Like, why couldn't he just kind of get his dick wet? And honestly, Eastwood doesn't know that his girlfriend's coming back in town. He's just you know he's lonely or whatever, and right. getting some getting some ass that night. But it's just there's some really scummy things to the way that. Oh, no, yeah,
0: know. it's uh, he's he's scummy through all this movie to me, like. 'Cause it's it's like it's like a like kind of like a Vic Mackey or like, you know, like any of those type of shows where it's like the guy basically like does like a scummy thing and it's like it's not the worst thing he could do, but it's like then he has to just constantly like keep doing scummy things to kind of like show that he's not scummy.
2: <laughs> so quick quick question, like looking at Eastwood's movies in the seventies and eighties, is Eastwood the ultimate movies that have not aged well movie stars
0: (laughs) um it could be I mean we did a pretty extensive like um analysis of Eastwood during um what was that Unforgiven I think that we like ended up talking like a half hour just about Eastwood like probably like too long but like we um we kind of like analyzed this dude um still trying to keep himself the baby face like just in a different way after all those years uh yeah yeah I think so um, I think so. And, and, and I think he's a really talented filmmaker. I really do. I think he's a talented director. Um, I think he has a really good eye. I think that like yes. he, he, he has, yeah. And I'm, I know he probably mm-hmm. has a hand in the editing, like with his editor, you know, it's like, I think he edits really well. Like, I think that he has, uh, I think he's a better director than he is an actor, honestly. And, um, uh, but I'm, and and even if I like his movies, I think that ultimately um it's kind of proven out like probably why they haven't aged that well like as the more we know sure. about Eastwood through the years um so I yeah, yeah I mean again, it's of the time I get it like you know, I think he might still make this movie today though <laughs> yeah, probably
2: true i i'm I'm curious how um how cry macho um is received or uh, how that movie is. Because have have you seen The Mule? Have you watched that movie? I have not watched that. So The Mule is... nigh unwatchable, I would say. Um, from, like, a philosophical standpoint for me, and just, like, a filmmaking standpoint. and not a good movie. But his performance in it is really good. Hmm. Like, so it's kind of the opposite of, like, how it usually is yeah. in these movies. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm curious, like, how... Because I'm not a fan of um, Gran Torino. I'm not a fan of um, uh, Million Dollar Baby. I don't really like all that much. Um, I don't know. like Just not not much of a fan of his modern stuff. Um, so I'm curious how that movie uh, turns out. Yeah. It's one that I'll watch when it shows up on HBO in like
0: three months. Yeah. Hold on. Which movie did you just say? Bye Macho. Oh, right. All right. I did hear about that. Um uh, I, I I had the opportunity to watch um and, and my wife's grandfather told me I should but um the Jewel movie um and, oh yeah I heard that was actually yeah I did too and I, it was on oh. HBO I just couldn't hit play I don't, I don't know why but um I think it was like two hours and twenty minutes or some shit I I couldn't do it but um but yeah he's um interesting. Yeah.
2: Yeah, he's something. He's definitely uh like 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 him or hate him, he's definitely I think like an icon of Sure. Absolutely. The second half of the century, you know, up to yeah. present of Hollywood. Sure. You know, one of the biggest stars definitely of like
0: from the nineteen sixties on so. Yeah. Yeah. And we always have
2: interesting conversations when we talk about his
0: movies. <laughs> we, we we yeah we do. I mean like look, that's why I said he's he's interesting. Um you know um definitely uncompromising um yeah i mean sure um uh, even when he talks to empty chairs yeah um yep all right so um but yeah it's 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 a, it's a fun i enjoyed watching it just the ending i was just like Ugh. <laughs> that's it like with me it's just the ending it's like of course um, Eastwood got to put himself over um, without any self reflection. It's typical. Uh, all right. Number four on your list. Uh, completely different type of movie. Uh, it comes from 1974 and it is Taking a Pelham 123. It is directed by Joseph Sargent and stars Walter Matthau, Robert Shaw, Martin Bassall, Hector Elizondo, and Earl Hinman. It has 100% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and an 88% from audiences. Uh, you want to tell us a little about this movie
2: and uh, why it's on the list? Um, so four armed men dressed in um similar kind of like nondescript disguises, which are um what you call them like pork pie hats, um mm-hmm. like long like herringbone kind of jackets, like they basically just look like I am like a '70s businessman um, hijack a uh, subway car. Um, the Pelham 123 subway car um, and basically their demand is if they're not given one million dollars by the city within two hours is it right um they're going to kill one yes. passenger a minute that's in their car that they're on until they get their um, until they get their money so the film like brilliantly splits itself between a couple of different like closed room scenarios sort of So you have the tension of these four men on the subway car um, holding these passengers hostage Um, and sort of having like internal tensions between each other because you kind of, even though they all look like similar, you sort of find things out about each of them just through secondary dialogue and action and whatever. Um, One of them's like a former um, military man who's like really regimented and one of them is... A guy who's kind of a loose cannon and willing to take chances, and one of them's sort of like a weaker, like doesn't really buy into the whole killing the passengers thing. That thinks that they can get away. So anyway, so there's interesting dynamic there, interesting dynamic between like the passengers themselves and kind of their personalities. Um, then the second closed room is you have um, Walter Matthau and Jerry Stiller, who are um, New York Transit cops, I guess, like like lieutenants, a lieutenant and a sergeant maybe. I can't remember what their roles are, but they're like ranking officers for the New York Transit Authority um, who are sort of watching the movement of this train. And again, like a really brilliant device um, on this board that I guess is like a real artifact of that time that shows by colored, like light up dots, like where the train is on the line itself. So in a like, it's crazy like how much tension they build into them just saying like, it's moving forward. Well, now it's moving back. What do you then, like, just the interplay between the people of that room, like, especially Matt Allen Stiller and, um, I can't remember the actor's name that plays the guy with the glasses Is sort of like the naysayer of all of it. Um, <clears throat> the one that he ends up, like, grabbing by the lapel. <laughs> what does he say? Like, I don't know. I, I'll fuck it. I, whatever Yeah, I can't remember
0: Fantastic his name. So.
2: Um, and then, like, a smaller closed room, which is a briefer scene but it's the mayor's inner circle like basically deciding are we going to pay this million dollars to save these people or are we not going to pay the million dollars and just the play out between you know these men in suits and comfort like completely removed from the physicality of the environment or like any real culpability deciding the fates of 30 30 right 30 yeah like new york city citizens just based on whether or not it's financially viable for them to pay that money and does it provide them with enough political clout to win the next election if they indeed pay it? So <clears throat> ultimately, they decide to pay the money. Um, so then it's a race to get the money counted and from the bank um, to the, the station where they say they want the money dropped off. Um, the whole time, Matt, that I was super suspicious that um, their plan kind of puts them in a position where they can't escape. So he continuously is looking for like what's the what's what's the rub like what's the catch because like these guys are basically like executing this perfect crime with a like ultimately imperfect solution so he's you know like basically the hero of the movie trying to figure out like where do we like cut them off like how are they going to like outsmart us um They eventually shoot one of the passengers because, um, a sniper or you never, I don't don't think you ever really find out like who did it, but somebody that's in the cops that are kind of down, like watching the train car itself, um, shoots off a shot and it causes one of the passengers to get shot. Um, but ultimately what the trick is, is that the men have found a way to override the dead man switch on the car they're on. So they're going to send that car. They say that they need all the lights green all the way down the track. And you find out through, again, like just really brilliant dialogue that, um, a red light will cause the train to stop so what they're doing is they're letting the train like you know them down the tracks so basically it's destruction while they get off and like leave through like an access tunnel and then go up back to the surface and kind of like doff their disguises and go back to their lives so um but like any crime movie it falls apart um to the point where ultimately only one of them is left alive after a shootout um that's, uh... Hecquerel... Not Hecquerel is on Right? is he- on he- Hecker- right. He's the one that... Um... That ends up alive at the end?
0: No. No? That's Martin Bussolm, I think.
2: Okay. Right.
0: The older, like... Yeah.
2: Former, uh... Former Transit Authority cop, um... Who was kind of like their inside man into the whole thing. Um... Who's coughing, like, throughout the entire movie, which again, like, plays in the end. But, um... Yeah. So they end up like basically killing um, the uh, the wild card gets shot because he refuses to comply with. Um, I can't remember their color names. Um, it's so it's it's something that Tarantino pulled directly from for Reservoir Dogs in terms of like
0: the naming people by. Color so Ro- Robert Shaw is blue. Basalm, who's the guy at the end, is green, and Alizondo um, El- is uh, gray. So gray is the dick
2: like the wild card blue is the cool collected like former well, what do they say they, and I mean, then like, and then there's mr brown as well um right, but, nobody wants to be mr brown because that's Shit.
0: right um who, who oddly if i don't know if you knew this the guy that played mr brown is the guy that played the neighbor wilson in home improvement really yeah yeah that's pretty So you get to see his face huh? you want to see
2: it <laughs> you know it's very hangdog.
0: Um, yeah. Very very oval. Mm-hmm.
2: So anyway, so um, ultimately, Blue kills himself instead of being taken prisoner. So um, Green is the one that uh, gets away in the end. Um, so they realize that somebody's gotten away with the money. So they're going after. And basically going and questioning anybody that's had, like, a connection to the Transit Authority or somebody that they think, you know, may have been involved. Um, So the ultimate scene is them going to um, Green's uh, apartment. Like, this really run down the shoveled apartment where he's basically doing the... Fuck, I just made fun of this movie a couple episodes ago. uh, Indecent Proposal, where he's, like, rolling around on his bed, like, on top of this, like, million dollars that he's secured. Um, where he thinks he's, like, pulled off the perfect heist. Um, and they come and knock on the door, and he hides the money in the oven. And then it's kind of a smartass to him because, like, it, it it's really well played where you think, like, he feels like he's come out on top and he's outsmarted these people and they can't pin anything on him because, oh, I was sick. And, like, why would I do that anyway? Like, what kind of asshole would, like, do that kind of thing? And as... um uh, Landau is walking out the door. He coughs and says Gazoon type, which happens several times, like during their communication on the train. And he co- like Landau starts to come back in with the implication that like that's how they catch him. So, oh yeah,
0: the, um, the, the the Columbo turnaround is one of yeah, my favorite it's, things it's in that fucking, entire movie. Like where he closes the door and then opens it again once like he hears the sneeze and like opens it up and just that look he has on his face, fucking yeah. brilliant.
2: Um, so really, odd well paced movie. Again, I think it's. I it, it's hard to explain. I think how fantastic, like the tension that's built in this movie, in what amounts to like really like three very small environments in a lot of. Mm-hmm. I know that like the train is moving. You have like the subway itself, and there's action that happens outside of like the um, the transit control room or whatever. But ultimately, like, it's a very like small area that all these things are happening in just the, the caliber of the actors in the movie just elevate like everything to such a like a high level you're very um very invested in them and um even like even though there's not a whole lot of time spent developing the characters, you kind of get invested in the the passengers on the train too like you sort of want to like start to want to see them survive and then you think that they're probably all like you when you realize that the idea is they're going to sacrifice all of them you know there is a lot of like, are they, is there some way that somebody's going to save them? Like, are they going to, like, you know, whatever, like, come out okay in the end? And ultimately, they don't die, so. Spoiler, I guess. But, um, yeah, just really, like, honestly, like, one of the more competent, solid crime movies, I think, of the 70s and maybe ever, um, that has its story, and it tells you its story, and it gives you a very good, solid, like, beginning, middle, and end. And there's, like, Lines and all of it, and, you know, just really, really well done, really enjoyable, and I think super iconic. And unfortunately, remade in 2009, I think 2009. Um, that's right, yep, but yeah, well, well worth seeking out, like, um, even now, you know,
0: whatever 50 years later, almost. And look, I'll just say this very briefly the 2009 movie. Is not terrible but it didn't need to be remade because it's a completely different story and Denzel and Gerald are both good in it it's a fine story it's an okay movie like six out of ten like but given the legacy of this movie it's like unconscionable to me that they would do it that they would try to do that but um, But because this movie, like I think you just said it, like is it's just it's just so competent, (laughs) like like from start to finish, like the actors are all competent, the direction is competent, like the script writing is solid, um, and from people that like don't really have a lot to their name, honestly, like so the screenwriter, I was when I was like figuring out who these people were, it's like. So this guy, his first script was Charade. Uh, mm, that's a really good one. It is. And, and then it's like it's like stuff like that he has. And then he has this, and um he has a, he has a decent movie that he wrote in the sixties. It was noir, um, I guess at that point almost like neo-noir called Mirage, the, with Gregory Peck. But um it's 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 a good it's but and then he has just Cause as his last script um, that he ever writes. Um, it's like everything else in between is like, eh. and then Joseph Sargent like has like hardly anything to his name. He has oh. White, White Lightning um, with Burt Reynolds, and I don't know this. You you probably do. It's it's a anthology Night- yeah, Nightmares. nightmares. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Like, and so, and he has this and it's like, it's, it's fascinating to me that like, such competency comes from, you know, just these kind of like workmen, you know, like script writer and director and you just get this like excellently like, you know, tight, well paced, suspenseful movie that has this like comedic tone to it the entire time, like just slightly under the surface. Everything's very serious. But it's like there's this a slight kind of like tongue-in-cheek nature sure. to it that I love. I love that 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 part of it. Like and a lot of some of that's math owl. Um, you know, throughout just taking it seriously, but not that seriously. And it's like it's, that's why it's the perfect end note to me, is that kind of comedy piece almost where the type comes back in and he does that like head right like, little yeah. head that tilt right
2: like. right right now he's mm-hmm.
0: yeah um and what a great ending scene like for after all the action's done it's like the tension of that scene where it's like Mathal definitely i don't know if he knows but he heavily suspects And it's like that cat and mouse in the last 10 minutes in that scene is so damn good. Um, And it's just like this fucking brilliant coda to like where everything is taking place in this like under dank underground like setting, you know, with a guy who is much more competent um, overall. And he's already been defeated. And it's like you just get this little coda of the guy who isn't quite as competent, but thought he could get away with it. And he gets nailed, too. Really good. I I love it, and I love the stuff yeah. with the mayor. Like you yeah. know,
2: i got yeah, the thing where and he like him sick in bed, and I don't know him turning yeah. his wife on. I I think we handled that really well. What did you say? Your your regular um, <laughs> fuck. What is his name? That fuck, the um, what has the airport named after? Laguardia. Yeah, if you're Laguardia,
0: right? Yeah, yeah. Um, because I'm I can't remember the mayor's name in this. Um. Yeah, I don't know. It's... Yeah, they just call him Mayor Al. Um, I, I almost have to suspect, though, the idea is if if that's the comment, like he's probably Italian. Um, and it's like referencing another Italian mayor. Um, is my guess. I, I would just um, although I guess Laguardia was just what one of the more popular mayors, maybe ever of New York City. I think but he's considered
2: he's, the mayor that basically like created the. Like the modern transit system in New York City. Mm-hmm. Like the sort of like the city planning of laying it out where it started to like make sense, I think. I don't know. I don't really know a whole lot about New York history, but I'm I, I think that might be right. Yeah. I'm sure um longtime friend and fan of the podcast,
0: Jason Easter, will send us a text to the next <laughs> Tell us all about LaGuardia. Tell me about LaGuardia. Nah, this this is this is just a fun damn heist movie. Um it's it's always been like one of my favorites just because to me it goes quick, even though it's a pretty what lengthy runtime, right? Oh, that's no, uh, not that bad. It's like two it's, hours. Yeah, yeah, a little less than two. It's like an hour and forty five minutes. Um, yeah. But um, it, it feels like it goes quick. Um, bad comparison, just because we just talked about it last week. Um, it reminds me a little bit, like in the terms of pacing of how it just like moves to me, kind of like Get shorty does. Um. Get shorty's better, I think, in terms of his pacing, but it is very similar to me in just kind of, um, just how it moves to me. Yeah, and I, for that reason, it's always been one of my favorites. But,
2: again, to my point, like I think that I think that um, uh, Pelham is particularly like notable because it does move at a brisk pace, and yet you don't have the usual like film. Technique of like the movement of scene, like we're moving from this place to this place, so you have a chance to breathe as like scenes transition. Because it's like we're in the car, we're in the room, we're in the car, we're in the room, we're in the mayor's. Room, you know what I mean? We're like sequestered yeah. with the cops that are at the the one like subway entrance, like basically like giving useless instructions. I mean all that stuff. I think is just um just fantastic. So I don't know. Yeah, it really, really good movie.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Oh, Jesus. There's so many damn good movies on here, Frank. Um, yeah, it's a really good list. Alright, so now we get into the three... The next three movies are all from 1973, Frank. All three of them. Um, Up here. Uh, so, the first movie on the list from 1973, or third movie on your list uh, here, is uh, The Long Goodbye. It is directed by Robert Altman. and stars Elliot Gould, Nina Palent, Sterling Hayden, Mark Rydell, and Henry Gibson in a small role as a doctor. Uh, one of my favorite actors ever. Um, has a ninety-three percent from critics and an eighty-seven percent from audiences. You want to tell us a little bit about this adaptation and why it's on the list?
2: Um, so adaptation is
0: the famous, um, oh, novel. There we go. All right. Whatever. Yeah, I, I just lost you for a second there.
1: Oh, um, yeah, there we go. So often
2: the traditional and kind of tells the story through the lens of almost kind of like a man at a time.
1: Gold's um, Philip uh, Marlowe is
2: inherently the same character that Philip Marlowe is in all, like any adaptation of him, except that in a world that no longer accepts that Philip Marlowe Marlo is. Like a viable way to live your life, kind of, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so he saw his really strong feelings of loyalty, honor, nobility, chivalry, um, <clears throat> all sort of hidden behind this veneer of like kind of world-weary sarcasm, you know, like hangdog charm, sort of, but nobody fucking cares <laughs> about it. And like no one takes it seriously. So. Um, one night in his apartment after he's lost his cat, um, a friend comes over and tells him like, Hey, I need you to do me a favor. Um, I got in a big fight with my wife and to drive me down to Mexico. Um, you know, for a few days. Uh, so of course, Bill Marlowe being like, good friend, loyal guy does this, uh, only to find out that the man's wife has been murdered and that he's the chief suspect in that murder. Um, so marlo of course you know won't won't tell the police anything but the police use strong-arm tactics basically to arrest marlo to force him to sort of cooperate um and it doesn't work because his friend is found dead um in mexico so sort of you know isn't a suspect um so then marlo runs a foul of this gangster who instead of being like the I don't know, like traditional like noir wisecracking, like tough guy gangster that, you know, ultimately has like to him. Like this guy's a brutal psychopath that smashes a coke bottle, right? In his or glass, I think. A mug maybe in his girlfriend's face to prove to Marlowe that um, if I, I can do this to somebody I love, what do you imagine I'll do to somebody I don't even like? Which is a fucking great line. Yeah. Um Marlow becomes infatuated with uh um, the wife of this prominent writer that he's hired to find. Um, the writer who's in a what would you call it? Like a sanitarium kind of like for rich people. Um, with this doctor that's like treating him for whatever, like his disorders. Yeah. It's, like which is dr- it's like a it's a, it's
0: yeah, it's a it's a Alcohol, right, dry or dry up, clinic, yeah, right. dry
2: yeah, but like it's, it's done in a way where because they're famous celebrities, like that's it's you know it's like an emotional retreat or whatever. Sure, um, but everything Marlowe does is like it's right for Philip Marlowe to do it as a character, but wrong for the situation in like 1973 that he's existing in. Right, because people just don't have time for that shit, like to be chivalrous or whatever. Um. Ultimately, like, Marlowe, you, you feel like he falls in love with the wife. And then the writer, who's this, like, very heavily, burly, manly, like, Hemingway, like, we're going to drink whiskey on the beach and smoke cigars and be men together kind of guy, um, ends up killing himself. And you ultimately find out that what happened was um, Marlowe's friend faked his own death um, and was having an affair with the wife of the writer um and had used marlo basically as his alibi so that he could go to mexico and kind of escape from the murder of his wife and live with the um wife of the writer um and so in like what what i think is like maybe one of the most brilliant twists in the movie is um marlo all of a sudden just kind of like shoots his friend because his friend is being like like of course I what does he call him? Like you like you sad stupid relic or something like that is like the line. Yeah, I yeah. can't remember the exact line, but he basically implies that like Marlo is this useless like he like his only use was basically to be an alibi for him and he just gets what he gets because he's you know, like an idiot and like no yeah. longer Well I called like him like
0: basically called him Mark.
2: Right. <laughs> like that's always you, Marlo. Anyway.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, so Marla shoots him and kills him and then like basically walks down the street and clicking his heels because he's finally, um, you know, finally sort of moved past, I guess, the man that, um, the man that he's been, um, really brilliant, like reinterpretation of the source material, um, both from the script's perspective and the way that Altman directs the movie. Um, amazing performance by Elliot Gould, including a couple of scenes. Like, there's one scene um, after the writer um, walks into the water and drowns, um, where you find out that it's possible that he killed the wife because well, what is it that's implied that the writer was having an affair with um, Marlowe's friend's wife? And that he might have killed her, and yeah, yeah, he
0: he was having an affair with Terry Lennox's wife, Terry and, Lennox, and, right. and 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 the the Hemingway writer, um, uh, Ro- Roger Wade, Roger Wade's wife um, Eileen was having an affair with Terry Lennox. Yeah.
2: So, in a fucking amazing scene that's on the beach where the cops have come, and um, Marlowe like. Elliot Gould had to be completely drunk, like, legitimately drunk during the scene. Um, just, like, yelling at the cops and, you motherfuckers, you never investigated this? What are you doing? Like, you fucking blame the wrong guy? Like, I don't know. Just, like, drunkenly wandering into the house and stuff. A great, great, great fucking scene. But, um, if you would have told me two-plus years ago when we first... Came up with the idea for this podcast. How many fucking Robert Altman movies would end up on top five lists? I would hmm. have told you you were an idiot because there was no way I was gonna put any Rod, Robert Altman movies on the list. But you know what? Like I find that I Here we I, are. Yeah I, I, I love a lot of Robert Altman movies. Like I really I really dig that dude's I don't always appreciate his style. Like I think sometimes he's a little much but man like when he's on he just
0: Oh, you like his early stuff particularly, right? Like
2: Yeah, really like anything. Even some of the later stuff too. It's yeah. I, I have a weird, weird relationship with that guy. Um <laughs> this movie in particular though, what one of the most brilliant um modern adaptations of a noir movie that doesn't like let itself fall into the trappings of actual like classic noir and sort of like turns all those conventions on their head. And it's it's shown like I think one of the more brilliant examples of how it's shown is the fact that Philip Marlowe is the only dude that smokes in this movie, but smokes constantly in this movie. Like Philip Marlowe was never not smoking a cigarette, no matter what he's doing throughout the entire movie. And It's just crazy, like yeah. And it, it's it's such a subtle detail because like unless you're really, I even give myself too much credit, but I I think unless you're really paying attention to it. You don't necessarily notice that that's the fact, but there's one point where um, the gangster mole that got the glass broken over her face is um, sitting in a room where the gangster has made all of his henchmen take their clothes off because they need to be naked in front of Philip Marlowe in order to um, be honest with them. Like you gotta yeah. you gotta see us naked so you can understand that we're coming from a place of honesty and we're all gonna be honest. And we're gonna be out of our clothes. And Marlowe really is in danger of being killed because they think that he still has stolen this money that Lennox like had stolen from this gangster. Um, and then the money mysteriously turns back up. So as Marlowe's walking out, he sees the woman sitting there, who's obviously still like scared and cowed mm-hmm. and not comfortable in the situation, but can't get away because of this guy's like power and influence, and just like his. You know, dangerous impulses, and Marlowe says, "Would you like a cigarette?" and am like, "Oh no, I don't smoke." And it's so, like at that point, I was like, "God damn!" Like nobody has smoked in this movie mm-hmm. except for Philip Marlowe. Um, another really just brilliant like part of the movie is Marlowe lives next to this almost like compound of hippie, like naturalist yoga women yeah. who are like mostly topless for large portions of the movie, although. Never in a way that's, like, exploitive or, like, right. erotic. It's just, right. like, here's these women that are so high or whatever that they have no concern for anything else. But they think that Mr. Marlowe is just the nicest guy they've ever met because he goes to get some brownie mixed in the middle of the night so they can make their special brownie. Um, and Marlowe doesn't. Like, you know, Marlowe, that's, that's his thing. Like, he'll walk out at 2 o'clock in the morning to get his cat, the right kind of cat food, and his hippie, nudist neighbors, the right kind of brownie mix. Um, ah, what, curry brand, right? Yeah, it's Curry brand Captain.
0: Curry brand Captain,
2: yeah. Um, um, but yeah, there's so many small details in the movie, so many little interactions where if you were talking about I don't know, like 20 years prior, it would play out completely in Marlowe's favor and you would think like, man, this is like, yeah. This this is the coolest dude. This is the the suavest. This is the man that you know man men aspire to be, and instead, you know, you just move it into the modern era, and all of a sudden, it's the opposite of that. Where man, this guy is a schlub. This guy is a pushover. This guy is like outdated, but still carried with such like strength by um by Elliot Goldenblade, you know, really perfectly. So just a fantastic movie i've been talking too much today you talk about why you love it because i know you you love
0: um yeah i this is i mean full disclosure like this is not the best movie on the list objectively speaking but it's my favorite movie on this list um I wanted to continue that discussion that you started about like uh, and I did read recently that he called him. Um, he always called this version of Marlowe Altman did, Rip Van Winkle. Um, so it speaks to what you were talking about a little bit here and we talked about a little, uh, the other night. But things that I love about this movie is, yes, Elliot Gould. Um, I always love this interpretation of Marlowe and I knew it was an interpretation of him but I never really put a lot of brain power into thinking about the things you started bringing up to me about like how he feels like he's misplaced. He's out of time. Like I, I got it, but it's like, I also didn't get the full extent of it, of what the message was about modern times. And certainly I think about Hollywood um, it's, it's not watching it again a couple nights ago. It's like, it's not lost on me now that it's like hooray for Hollywood begins and ends the movie. Um, it's it's you know the joke. Um, and but I love ghoul's performance in it. Um, but I never really like put together like yeah that he's actually kind of a loser here. Um, yeah. that nothing works. And until you started like talking about it the other night, and it's like yeah, you're right. Like nothing ever. He's doing all of the kind of Chan Chandler esque Marlowe things, but he's not succeeding. It's like so. It's like he's he's st- trying to like you know fuck with the cops at the beginning of the movie and it's like well they just like pr- like kind of plant evidence and like take him in anyway like he right. doesn't get over on him. like you know I mean like nothing ever and it's like I started thinking about the cat and it's like um based off of that and it's like well right that's the symbol of the cat right is like is that here he is like out trying to get this fucking cat food you know and it's like and like the cat gets his food and just runs away <laughs> And it's like there's no thank you, there's no gratitude, right. there's nothing right, like, and that and the cat is becomes a symbol at that point of what everybody is like in this right. movie. Well, that's the
2: thing, is like, and I again, like, I, I think it's brilliant the way that it's done is that modern day Philip Marlowe doesn't even have the savoir faire guile to trick a feline into eating his <laughs> cat. right? Just for all this trouble to try and make the cat believe that this is curry brand cat food, and the cat just outsmarts him in two seconds and jumps out a window with right
0: sure and it's like it, like it just disappears you know i mean after waking him up i jump on his chest at fucking whatever 3 a.m in the morning and like he goes to the fucking supermarket um which actually is another thing i love about this movie is uh, it's, it's you know it's that i think mixed with i think it's intercut with terry lennox driving Um, uh, like that scene with the supermarket, but it's like it's where you first notice that it's John Williams actually. It does like kind of like uh, the music for this, like and um, oh, I forget now. Mercer, um, I can't remember his first name. Um, that does the lyrics for the good, good, the long goodbye song, but um, they end up like using the long goodbye, like except for Hooray for Hollywood at the beginning and end. The whole fucking soundtrack of this thing is some variation on this song, "The Long Goodbye," and it's like there's a supermarket muzak version. There's like the kind of like jazzy hey. version when Terry Lennox is driving. There, at one point, there's like a mariachi kind of uh-huh. like Day of the Dead version of the whole thing. Like it's and it's throughout the entire movie, and it's almost like this mocking soundtrack like where it's like there is just like then it just keeps telling like you know it's like the it's almost like marlo and i think this all ties in another thing i love about this is the camera never stops moving it's like altman's on a dolly this entire fucking movie and like he's moving past marlo's point of view a lot of times to where it's like or like marlo as a central character it's like Marlowe, it's like it, it, it moves and like Marlo's out of frame and you see shit like, you know, and it gives you one of the things I realized during this podcast that I love is that voyeuristic nature um, that a lot of filmmakers from the 70s ended up like using a lot of times and like, so it kind of, it's like you're kind of just like witnessing all this stuff happen and like you're not necessarily focused on a viewpoint and I think like that camera movement and it creates this dreamy quality a lot of times to the movie where it's almost like Marlo's walking through a dream, Um, like like very much like the idea of a fan, like he's waking up from like, you know, it's like he wakes up and all these years later and he's like still in a dream almost like this isn't the world that he knows this like nothing works, nothing happens. But it's like then the music at that point becomes mocking to me. It's like the long goodbye. I mean, I'm assuming the idea, like, it's like when um, when Lee Bracken, like, adapts this, who adapted The Big Sleep as well, which is fascinating, like, yeah. you know, in the 40s, it's like is that the idea is ultimately the joke is that, like, the idea of um, like the Chandler-esque hero um, and I'm trying to remember um, Chandler's line in, that he wrote about like the protagonist um, in a simple art of murder um but down these <laughs> but down these mean streets a man must go who is not himself mean who is neither tarnished nor afraid um it's like there there's this big long thing I'm going on a second um oh that was easy um the detective in this kind of story must be such a man he is a hero he is everything he must be a complete man and a common man and yet an unusual man he must be to use a rather rather weathered phrase a man of honor by instinct by inevitability without thought of it and certainly without saying it he must be the best man in his world and a good enough man for any world i do not care about much about his private life he is neither a eunuch nor a, uh, a sadder he I think he might seduce a duchess, but I'm quite sure he wouldn't spoil a virgin. If he is a man in honor in one thing, he is that in all things. He's a relatively poor man, or he would not be a detective at all. He's a common man, or he could not go among common people. He has a sense of character, or he would not know his job. He will take no man's money dishonestly and no man's insolence without due or dispassionate revenge. He is a lonely man, and his pride is that you will treat him as a proud man or be very sorry you ever saw him. That actually actually makes this ending make a lot more sense. Um, he talks as a man of his age talks, that is, with a rude wit, a lively sense of the grotesque, a disgust for sham, and a contempt for pettiness. The story is this man's adventure in search of hidden truth, and it would be no adventure if it didn't, did not happen to a man fit for adventure. He has a range of awareness that startles you, but it belongs to him by right because it belongs to the world he lives in. If there were enough like him, the world would be a very safe place to live in without becoming too, too dull to be worth living in. Um, that's who Marlowe is, except for the world around him doesn't exist like that anymore. And I think the idea is that Chandler esque hero there is described. After you talked about it the other night, I thought about him. It's like the long goodbye is the goodbye. To the Chandler esque hero, and it's mocking him and it's following him that music all the way throughout. I, 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 that, that, and I always said that I thought this was a brilliant adaptation before thinking about this stuff until you brought it up to me. Um, just because it was so different, like from so many other, like you know, Chandler adaptations. I didn't realize the depth of the brilliance of what Lee Bracken and Robert Altman created here. Um, It is absolutely stunning to me um, what they've done and Elliot Gould plays it to absolute perfection Um, all the way through. Like, um, yeah, like I, like I said, this was always one of my favorites and now it's like, um. I think it's even more so. Like, it's All the way around. But what's fascinating is they, they weren't going to adapt us originally. It was going to be one of Chandler's other novels. They were either going to... I think they were going to do like The Little Sister or something like that. Um, or his last novel that... I can't remember who ended up finishing that novel for him, but they were going to do something else. But it's like... Um, have you ever seen the other... Any of the other adaptations of those, Frank? No,
2: well, there's, they're not that many, are there?
0: There's two, I think. Um, I know
2: there's one that's like TV adaptation. I've definitely not seen that one.
0: Yeah, um, because a lot of times they'll rename them um, often. Yeah, I can't find it quickly, but, um, yeah, there's a couple of them that are out there, um, that were, got renamed and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, this, this is, this might be my favorite adaptation as much as I love the big sleep, as much as I, um, there's a couple of versions of the farewell, my lovely, like, again with different names Murder my Sweet I think is the other name, um, that I like this. This is my favorite, I think Chandler adaptation, um, Overall, and I love. Oh, Sterling Hayden is so good in this.
2: Yes, yeah, yep.
0: And I always like Sterling Hayden, but it's like old Sterling Hayden here, like basically playing Hemingway, which is a joke because Chandler Hating hated Hemingway, um, like to to make him Heming, more Hemingway esque, like. Um, and apparently, did you read that like Hayden was like drunken high throughout this entire movie? I did read
2: that. Yeah, you, you did. Yeah, but, I mean, it, it plays so perfectly into um, uh, perfectly into whatever, like the actual the tone of the film and everything, and just the character itself, which is just this this guy that's like really like what you would think of as Marlow, which is like the man's man, the guy yeah, that exudes manliness, but still is just a mess. And yeah, and for all his bluster, is like passed out drunk, you right? At his at his desk,
0: yeah. So I want to ask you this one thing, and I'm done. Um, Is it when he wakes up in the hospital? Because the one time he seems to get over, besides killing Terry Lennox, and I don't know if that's, like, getting over necessarily, it may be or it may not be, but it seems like in the hospital he gets over. Like when he wakes up in the hospital, um, which is my favorite joke in the entire movie, I think, is when the person's there in the like basically the full body cast. And he's like, hey, how's it going? I've seen all your movies. <laughs> um, right. But he, he like cons like the nurse and is like, no, no, that's that's, you know um that, that's mr Marlowe, like right there like what do you how, how where have you been like how long <laughs> how long you've been off like you know in the are, and he gets away and that basically leads into the end sequence so it's almost like it feels like there's something about getting hit, like the the him getting put in the hospital and waking up is well, like he, when his lucky yeah team.
2: he gets hit by that car so right yeah he gets I, by hit hits by her car right because it's, it's it's really when he's ultimately betrayed. Like, when his chivalry is betrayed and yeah. everything yes. is betrayed. And he realizes that Lennox is alive in Mexico, basically. Because, you know, he's he came to her aid. He came to her rescue. He was trying to, like, be her white knight. And she ignores him and then runs him down. So, yeah. Um, yeah, maybe that is when he can finally get over is when he, um, you know. Whenever finally, he, he gets it,
0: maybe. yeah, right. right. Like when he finally like is wakes up almost like to like what the world really is. Um, do you real quick? Do you get third man vibes at the very end of that as well? Sure. Like, I mean, him, like it's, it's the same shot, evil, maybe right? honestly. Yeah, I mean that, that that shot of him walking towards the camera um yeah. is very much like that shot in Third Man with her walking towards the camera. Um, and to this point where it's like she's passing him in the car, right? Like, and like, it's kind of like reverse from the third man. Um, right. But where like, you know, Joseph Cotton standing still and she walks past Joseph Cotton, like towards the camera, but he's walking towards the camera and she dr- like, kind of like drives by and he keeps walking Yeah, um, with, it's very- with, with,
2: with the same moment of recognition. Sure. Like sure. very brief and not like telegraphed at all, but there, right. Yeah, definitely.
0: Right. Um okay, I'll stop now. But yeah, okay. it's one of my favorite movies of the 70s, so um, I think this is moving. All right, so I know you have now, a lot to say about this. Now we'll
2: about one of I don't I don't know. We'll we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. I mean I, I have good things to say about it. I just don't know how like intuitive hmm. I hmm. have to say. But we'll we'll see what happens.
0: So also for nineteen seventy-three is Mean Streets directed by Martin Scorsese, as stars Harvey Kaitel, Robert De Niro. Richard Romanus, Amy Robinson, and David Provol. It has a 95% from critics and an 84% from audiences. Uh, you want to tell us a little bit about this movie and uh, why you have it number two on the list? Um, so in my opinion, Scorsese's
2: um, best, or my, my favorite Scorsese film, um, it's really the small kind of love story between two best friends. Um, who are sort of interacting at the very lowest levels of uh, the Italian mafia. Um, Kaito plays Charlie, who's a made man, but like a very low level made man, kind of a numbers runner, um, debt collector style, like guy that has connections to the upper levels of like the families of, you know. The mafia but isn't necessarily like given super important tasks and one of the reasons for that is his um long abiding and almost blind um allegiance to uh de niro's johnny boy um character who's a completely unhinged not even unhinged just devil may care um Gadabout kind of guy that like incurs huge debts from all the local loan sharks and um, kind of parlays his friendship with Charlie into not getting his legs broken. Um, so the a big part of the movie and what one of the reasons why I love this movie so much is that it sort of is kind of like a um in it's the opposite of kind of like Pelham where it's kind of free flowing throughout different parts of, like, the city over the course of a couple of days where um, Romanus's Michael character, who's also another, like, low-level, you know, street, like, mafia, mafioso, who's a, a, a loan shark, basically, like a Shylock or whatever, um, who's trying to collect on this debt from Johnny Boyd, who keeps ducking him, and who feels that his honor is being impugned because he can't collect this debt, but is reticent to commit violence against Johnny Boy because of Charlie's constant reassurances, that, oh no, he's got a job, he's going to give you money, Like money's coming, Um, which Johnny Boy never has any intention of paying. And there's a really hilarious through line to this movie of the idea that, well, if you just give him this $30, like and he owes Michael three thousand dollars, but if you just give him this thirty, he'll know that you're that that you're at least making an honest effort. He'll know that you're good, um, which is ridiculous. But it's like they've convinced themselves, or Charlie's convinced himself that you know because he understands the way that that the the world of like organized crime works, which is that you know you got to pay your debt, you got to like show you got to like show respect, you got to have you know FaceTime with the people. And not duck them, I and mean, they'll understand a little more. But Johnny Boy is just not built for that world. He's, um, he reminds me kind of of, um, sort of like Chris Penn or um, Tom Sizemore or uh, Mike, Michael Michael Madsen's character in um, Reservoir Dog, sort of. I think that's kind of like the analogy there, which is a guy that's in a life of crime, but not really built for a life of crime because he doesn't have the same like moral fiber almost of the previous generation um Mm -hmm. and then the other sub the other plot of the movie is charlie's love for um Teresa, who is um, johnny boy's cousin who's an epileptic and who's viewed as a non-viable romantic partner for anyone who's like a serious made man because she's sick in the head because she has epilepsy um, so these two broken people that are completely not respected or like viewed with any kind of like positive light by the people that Charlie, you know, could be made into like a much greater member of the mafia by are the people that he loves because he has this over, like overriding sense of loyalty and, um, devotion to these people, even though they're kind of, well, I mean, Teresa's definitely not a broken person. She has an illness, but. Johnny Boy has a lot of like emotional trauma built into him. And one of my favorite De Niro performances of the 70s, to be honest with you, because constantly, like, you feel such contempt for this man and for the lack of like compassion he has for his best friend who's doing everything he can to keep him from being killed, basically. Because honestly, like throughout the movie, if Charlie would just say, fuck it like, do what you need to do, like, Johnny Boy would be dead, no matter how tough he thinks he is. But his toughness is this false bravado that's built out of the cachet that's given to him by his relationship with Charlie. And he's... I And the thing is, is, like, De Niro's performance is so brilliant here because you know that Johnny Boy knows that, but Johnny Boy is never going to give Charlie the respect enough to tell him that he knows that. Right. And Charlie is so... And gullible isn't the right word, but, like, even for being a criminal, Charlie is so noble and so pure in his, like, his friendships and his loves that he's just not willing to, um, you know, to, to give up on it. It's, 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 it's heartbreaking throughout the entire movie. Um, and I have shit on Harvey Keitel so many times on this podcast, but Harvey Keitel is, this is, this is the role Harvey Keitel was built to play, which is the schmuck. Kind of right, like the guy that has a little bit of knowledge or whatever, but makes the absolute <laughs> wrong decisions all the time and is a fucking idiot. Like, this is Harvey Keitel. That, that is all.
0: not shitting on Harvey Keitel at all, but he
2: plays, <laughs> he plays his soul. Um, and another, so another thing that I love about this movie, and one of the things that I think maybe is the reason why I think it's my favorite for Zazy movie is because Scorsese had no money when he was making this movie. So it all was done on handheld cameras so you get this really strong like cinema verite feel to it. And it's it's almost we, we talked about this in Across 110th Street specifically um, because that was the movie where they started using like the Aeroflex cameras and they were able to like really get into like small places and film and Scorsese really captures like the claustrophobic feel of like city streets and i've never lived in the city you know but i've been in like major cities i think enough times where when you have buildings that are towering over you and there's just every direction you know it it feels like i mean it's a cliche but it's like you feel like you're kind of like a rat in a maze in that point um it's it's true here like scorsese's filming of this movie like captures that perfectly where a lot of times the only escape is to go into these places like into these buildings and they're kind of traps too you know it's like charlie is constantly trapped by every aspect of his life that will not allow him to just do the thing he wants to do which is basically go be with his girlfriend and be happy because he also he's got to take care of johnny because who's going to take care of him he's got to be um He's got to be a, a good. Um, what is he? A nephew, right to um, the uh, the yes. head of the mafia, the mafia. So, because
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, he's he's got to be he's got to be a good soldier. He's got to be a good nephew. He's got to be, you know, he's got to protect this person. He's got to protect that person, and then he ultimately traps himself. Um, and really, so like another like amazing scene in this movie, and it really is made possible by. The fact that they were using like smaller handheld cameras is um in my head I think of it was the fucking 1979 scene, mm-hmm. um, which is where um Kytel has a camera strapped to him like by rig, which is something that, you know, if you know the Smashing Pumpkins video in 1979, it's like the central conceit of that video. Um, but it's that fucking ridiculous song playing as he's getting like increasingly drunk. And blurry and sweaty and just like falling all over the place. And it the song's like intensity and ridiculousness like follows them through the scene it's just brilliant. So um and ultimately the tragedy is that Johnny's hubris causes him to die. And basically almost costs the life of Charlie and um and Teresa who are both kind of being led away in an ambulance at the end with no real resolution as to his place in his crime family, their place together. Um so I don't know, just um really fantastic movie, really well done. Great dialogue, great performances. Um, I, I I really think that this is the place where a lot of modern crime pulls from because this is like the lowest point of it. Like this isn't the place where the gangsters are polished superheroes or people you aspire to be they're kind of idiots that are just sort of like stuck in these roles they end. and ultimately you know they're just there to you know serve the people that are really in charge so i really like that part of it too that it's not about like the highest levels of whatever the organized crime family and all the riches and power that you get from it's like Hey, please don't break my 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 best friend's legs because you know he'll pay you. I promise. And I got to go do this thing for this dude over here. Like it's like your description of RPG quests almost. Like I, I got to go over this place and do. this uh, That's thing. not my
0: description. That 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 was an old friend of Bletso's name, um, Adam Love. I want to give credit where credit is due, which is when somehow R, uh, RPGs came up one night. He said, like you know, oh, you mean like one of those things where it's like I got to go. Back and talk to this bitch over here. Um, right. is, it was his summation of that genre, and it was like that's pretty perfect. Um, if dis- if dismissive, but
2: um, yeah, that's the other thing too. So like they they go in the one guy's um, pool right, to collect debt from. Him. And brilliant, brilliant scene, one of my favorite. They're scene. so fucking incompetent, yeah, that they can't even strong arm this guy that owes the money. Sure, but then it's like all of them are so incompetent that they're just cowed by the. We were just being friends, officer. Like nothing was going on here. It's like I don't. know um, So many perfect little like vignettes of just low lifes being low lifes, which I think is. And they're all like really brilliantly played. And again, not a fan of Keitel in general, but I think this is a really fantastic one of De Niro's best performances of the '70s, and I love him. Uh, what's her name? Amy Robinson is Teresa. I think she's mm-hmm. an amazing. Mm-hmm. Too. Yeah. And, so, and so, like, it's it's crazy because I mean, I grew up. You know, my there's a lot of Italian like heritage in my family, so I I grew up with people that not really like this because not the same accents and stuff, but sort of the same like thing like ways of saying things or um terms terms of praise and things like that being like casually racist for no reason like I like I know those people it's like I don't know it, it it's really very natural dialogue very well written very well acted so not that I'm even like suggesting that's okay I'm just saying that like as a kid like you would hear people say things like that and it just when you hear them say it in this movie it feels real
0: yeah no I uh, agreed I mean I haven't seen this movie since I was a teenager, like, when I first started, like, I, this might have been one of the movies that, like, I had my mom rent for me when I had, like, that surgery that I've discussed a couple times, and my mom, my, my nice mom would go out, like, you know, basically, like, every day or every other day for, like, the month that I, like, was laying on my stomach for the surgery, and would go out to, uh, you know, Movie King and rent. Five for five, you know, for five or whatever, like, you know, um, but I'd go out there like pretty much every day or every other day. And I was just gone through Leonard Rollins' guide of like the greatest movies. And like, so that I saw this when I was probably whatever that was, 14, like 13. And I haven't seen it since. Um, it was just another highlight in my book at that point. Um, and I remember liking it and I, I appreciate it. I think I'd seen Goodfellas by that point. Um, but holy shit! Like knowing more about film now than I do did then. Like this is amazing what he's able to accomplish at this point of his career. Yeah, I, I like the like you remember the thing and that scene that you referenced where they go try to collect. It was like the sheer energy and force of that scene of like, like taking that camera behind them as like that fight breaks out and like just the energy it was like holy shit like I I start it made me start thinking about films around this time period you didn't follow people like that that closely like into like a struggle or something like that which is a staple of filmmaking now like this is like a guy who's
2: really like a brilliant director as much as I should sometimes like really like learning on the like, you can see his talent just in like him learning on the fly mm-hmm. how to use setting and actual like like real world places. I, I don't even know what to say like you know rooms and objects as like framing and that. It's just yeah, it's it, it's pretty funny, like all that stuff.
0: Yeah, I, I it, it is. It's like, I could, I could sit here and list like so many different scenes and the way he films them is just like this, like knowing what I know now, this revelation of filmmaking, this shit that he's like innovating, like probably on the fly, I suspect. And it's just like a completely different, as a guy comes along and it's a completely different way of looking at filmmaking in this movie. Um... Some of it probably based off necessity and some of it just because he thinks differently. And the the impact of this like reading about like how many people like cite this as an influence is just absolutely astounding. Um, like so many directors like have this in like their top five movies like of all time and stuff like that. Um, but just because it's on my mind recently because the many saints and Newark is coming out like here in another three weeks or so. Like, it, like, when you, when you mentioned like who Johnny reminds you of, Johnny reminds me of a slightly more unhinged Christopher Maltesante. Yeah. Uh, that's a really good comparison. And, 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 and when I was thinking, watching this movie and thinking about like all of that, cause like I automatically was thinking about the Sopranos because of David Provo, right? Like playing, who ended up playing Richie Aprile in the second season of the Sopranos. Um, and like, I'm sitting there and like, I'm, I'm like watching and the Sopranos in the back of my mind. And it's like the Soprano, like David chase, like, and you, you said it perfectly just a little bit ago where it's like, this isn't about like the grandiose nature of the mafia, like, you know, like the, the, the higher ups and stuff like that. This is about like the idiots at the lower level, but, I don't think David Chase has the idea of doing, like, the higher-ups, but letting them be the lower-level idiots, even if they are, like, basically, like, you know, the 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 Capos and the fucking Don, like, of the Mafia, without this movie. Because that's the brilliance, I think, of The Sopranos, is that Tony's not, like, some sort of fucking mastermind um tony's just a dude that like has panic attacks and is living his life right i mean like in some ways like you could say that tony does have some of the morals of somebody like the the charlie character in this um at times you know and is still a piece of shit like you know right. but it's like and it's like it's like that that you humanizing character that scorsese does here in 73 like The Sopranos doesn't exist in 1999, and it's like one of the most popular television shows of all time, right? Uh, it, and and it's is it's astounding to me that he's so ahead of the damn curve here. Um, like both in, like the way he views these things, like the 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 camera work that's in it, the movement that's in it, in terms of the camera work, it is. It was really refreshing to see this again, and like actually. Care about Squarespace again for, you know, two hours. Two hours um, right. Yeah, right, right. Um, I'll I'll be interested to see how I think of Goodfellas because someday we got to talk about it. But um, I haven't watched Goodfellas since the mid nineties either, probably. But um, probably but interested to see what I think about that someday. Yeah. But yeah, I was really into this. Like, I really like this a lot. Rewatching it, it's um. The Goodfellas
2: list is uh, movies that Frank loves, but are it's a tiresome love, I not
0: don't, I don't <laughs> right. Um,
2: Great t- movies that are tiresome. Great movies that are,
0: and I think it's also fascinating, just on like kind of like a more personal level. This podcast is that it's like we, to me, we we might have covered De Niro's. To him personally, his two best roles back to back in two different weeks. Because I would argue that it's like this and Jackie Brown might be his best performances.
2: Yeah, you know, which, is, con- which is
0: controversial, I know, but you know, you know I love um, Taxi Driver. I know, I, I know you do. Yeah, I love his performance. Yeah, driver. yeah. Uh-huh. Um, um,
2: I I would say it's this heat if I had to pick his two best. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Really fantastic in Jackie Brown, but I think that I don't know. There's just something about his um, something about the tragic nature of that character that just like elevates that performance to me.
0: Yeah, and that's why oh, that's so inside baseball. But that's why I said earlier in that text thread right, that it's like I can't see De Niro doing it because I think he would play it like the guy in Heat when I when we were talking about Kill Shot earlier. Right. Like I think he would play like that character, like the Neil Macaulay character, and like that character, you're right, it's like perfect, um, absolutely perfect and tragic and human and um, great performance, um, in that great movie. But I don't know, there's just something about that Jackie Brown performance with him that's so different and offbeat that I really like it, and it's like you see some of that. Here, but it's in a completely different way, and um, uh, yeah. It's well like, because
2: he because he it, it feels dangerous.
0: Like, yeah, yeah. It's hard to explain that. Like,
2: yeah, like there's certain roles that make you uncomfortable, and it's not it's it's not a direct comparison in the sense that these are similar roles, but it's almost the way you feel watching uh, Michael Rooker in Henry Portrait of Hero Killer, mm. where it's like it's transcended acting to the point where it really feels like you're watching something else. Like you're watching yeah. like, such transformative performance that um, like that person is legitimately like you're watching a real person on screen and you, yeah, like Johnny makes you tense. Like it, it like tightens your chest. Like sometimes when you're watching him. It's so like when he, when Charlie is comforting Teresa in our room, And trying to make her feel better, and trying to explain like, this is why, like I, like why I'm doing what I'm doing. I'm trying to protect your cousin. And he just climbs in the window and is an absolute fucking asshole. And is basically like, you know what? I'm going to go tell everybody you're fucking my epileptic cousin. You know, yeah. When when you fuck her, does does she she have an epileptic fit? Like that happen? Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's like, this man is risking like his life and his career for you, basically, and. This is how you behave, so I'm I just such such a brilliant
0: Yeah, no, agreed. I mean it completely makes sense of like all the roles he ended up getting like after this. I mean, um deservedly so. I mean he was Yeah, definitely. It wasn't until the past twenty years that, you know, you start thinking different of Darrow maybe, but um but yeah, no. I really enjoyable watch again. If you've never seen it, watch it if you can, have seen it like and it's been a while, definitely watch it again. I mean it's it's I would I oh my god, that's the kind of thing though you think nineteen seventy three, it's like I'm sitting there saying I think it was ninety three when I had that surgery. So it's like it's been longer now since I've seen it than it was before when it came out to when I first saw it. That's disgusting. Right? Oh, right. right. It's, yeah, yeah. So it's bit yeah. So it's you, been... you were
2: you were closer to its release Yes, when yeah. you saw it than you are to the first time you saw yes. it. Now, right? That is disgusting. Eh, oh, whatever, man. you're
0: an old man. <laughs> fine.
2: I'm old too. I'm 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 more young and hard though, so
0: I think that's true. Yeah, I do. Um all right. So number one on your list, also from nineteen seventy three. So it just the Long Goodbye, Mean Streets, and then Badlands, directed by Terrence Malik, starring Martin Sheen, Sissy Spacek, Sissy Spacek, and Warren Oates. 97% from critics, 90% from audiences. All of these come out in the same year. It's insane. But tell us a little bit about this movie, Frank, and why it's number one on the list. Um, so,
2: a nice actual bookend to the first movie. Um, this is another directorial debut. Um, Terrence Malick, um, I think 27 years old when he made this movie, something like that. Um, so loosely based, lo- loosely inspired by, um, the killing spree of, uh, Charles Starkweather, um, in the 1950s, um, Sheen plays a charismatic, um, garbage collector, uh, kind of ne'er-do-well. He's a Korean War veteran, but can't really hold down a job. Um, becomes infatuated. He's 20, 25, I think they say in this movie. Um, yeah, he's, 20, he's 25
0: and she's 15, I remember, yeah.
2: So he's playing Kit. Um, becomes infatuated with um, Holly, who's the 15-year-old um, uh, orphaned daughter of um, a guy who's um, What's his name war notes um war daughter uh he so kit and her become infatuated with each other they quite will fall in love um kit really has the emotional maturity of a 15 year old so it's kind of like it sort of makes sense and then it takes place in the 1950s so whatever like 25 and 15 probably is even that scandalous at the time um but Oates completely objects to their relationship um, to the point where he tells uh, Kit, you know, I don't want you to see my daughter anymore. Um, Kit sneaks into their house one day and um, is caught by the father and they get in an argument. Kit shoots him. Um, so. So it's funny because this movie is narrated throughout by Sissy SpaceX um, Holly character. Um And I think in a lot of ways, like, it's almost an unreliable narrator situation, sort of, because she's definitely painted to be, like, not necessarily innocent, but definitely like someone that's just kind of being, like, pulled along by an older, um, influential, like, figure in her life, someone that she feels that she's in love with. But in a lot of ways, I mean, she's more emotionally mature than he is. So, anyway. So they flee from... They fake their suicide, even though it's like the most ill-conceived suicide faking <laughs> ever because they leave Warren Oates's murdered body in the house and then leave no other bodies in the house and then just leave. And also, like, drive through town in midday so she can get her books from from her school locker so she doesn't fall behind in class. <laughs> um, anyway, so um, they proceed to flee... Uh, across, They're in South Dakota, so they're fleeing south at first. Um, so they spend some time building a treehouse and living this really almost like fantasy-esque, Swiss Family Robinson-style life, um, where they steal chickens and produce from local farms and kind of lay and look at the stars and, you know, are just sort of free. Um, that's shattered by these three bounty hunters that come to find them that um, Sheen murders. Um, in Cold Blood, basically. Well, not really Cold Blood, because they're coming to get him, but he, he kills all three of them. Um, so then they flee from there. Uh, they end up at a place that's being um, taken care of by the guy that Sheen used to collect garbage with. Um, Sheen is becoming, like, more paranoid that people are out to get him. Um, and it also is starting to show, like, his antisocial uh, tendencies that have sort of landed him where he is anyway. Um, so they end up, he ends up murdering his friend and then there's two people that come to visit his friend that he locks in a, um, root cellar and he maybe kills because he like shoots into it. So you never really get clear. Well, they say he murders what, 10 people. So I guess he did kill those two people. Yeah. Is what's implied. Um, so they start to run again. Um, they're traveling now north because he wants to get to the border, of canada so they can like go like live free or whatever because it's what he thinks is going to happen right um she's becoming increasingly disillusioned with the idea of like being on the run for her whole life um because the fascination with you know being with this man that she guy that she thinks she loves or whatever is starting to wear off um they end up stealing a cadillac they end up like basically camping out in this rich man's house for um several days, and they end up stealing his Cadillac and a bunch of supplies from him. Um, but at that point, they're found out, and the police start to chase him in earnest. Um, when they send a helicopter after him, Sissy SpaceX like, abandoned Sheen um, because she can't take being on the run anymore. Uh, he then has this dramatic car chase shootout with these sheriff's officers that ultimately ends in him um, surrendering himself um, where he's taken captive, and then charming all of the police officers to the point where they're all, like, friends, and he's given them his personal belongings. He says, you know, like, this is going to be a good souvenir. Like, this this lighter, this is something you really want. Like, this is a valuable piece, and this is my comb. Um, and then it ends with the coda um, through SpaceX uh, narration that she ended up marrying the son of the attorney, the representative at trial, and he ended up getting electrocuted at the electric chair. Um, So it's really hard to put into words why this movie is as great as it is, because a lot of it is just really... Malick's... Malick paints these horrific crimes as this almost I mean really I, I I think so she reads from what is it Treasure Island at one point She's mm-hmm. reading like passages from Treasure Island and that's really what the movie feels like a lot of times kind of like a children's fable or a fairy tale almost where you know there's it's softly lit and there's like trees and the grass and he does a really good job of like framing it where it feels like it's in the 50s, but it's not super reverential to like, doesn't feel like a period piece necessarily. It's just like a really well done, you know, like look and feel where you get the feeling of the 50s. But, you know, Sheen has this like dirty, I mean, so first of all, or second of all, whatever, <laughs> obvious like influence on so many movies that were popular in no. the 90s and so oh, many yeah. things that like that we loved in the 90s most specifically for me um True Romance which mm-hmm. is an obvious homage to Badlands um but more like a like masturbatory um fanboy fantasy homage to Border or to Badlands where they, you know, where Bonnie and Clyde characters like actually get away in the end. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, like in Sheen's performance, like I think it really influences things, like um like the one character uh, in Capote, you know, like I, who plays um, what's I can't remember the actual like real man's name, uh, one of the killers in Capote, the short Uh-oh. one, issues. The one, um, the one that's in
0: prison, right? Yeah, yeah. like, 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 um, it,
2: like you, you can see in like so many, And even Slater, Christian Slater in uh, True Romance, like you can feel like Perry, Perry pulling, Smith, Perry Smith, yeah, Perry Smith, them all pulling from Sheen's just like masterful performance here as a kid, basically. Um, and Spacek,
0: Natural Born Killers too, I think. Right, right,
2: yeah, one hundred percent. Um, And that's another movie that really is just kind of, like, sucking from, like, the teat, I guess, of um, just the brilliance of Badlands. bad Spacek in, I don't know, like, number one, she feels like a 15-year-old kid in this movie, even though I think she's, like, 24. I want to say she was born in 59, so she's, like, in her early 20s when she films this movie, but Mm -hmm. that sort of a thing that she channeled later into um Carrie, but kind of the opposite of that performance. So here she's, and in in um, Three Women as well, because it's a similar performance there too, so sure, just this wise beyond her years, but still kind of like Moonchild type thing almost. Um, I don't know, just really brilliant performance. Very, like, ethereal and beautiful, but still almost alien and childlike, while at the same time, like, wizened. I don't know. It's, it's amazing, like, how many... Like, just the way that Malik films her and the expression she uses and the way that she carries herself sometimes like she's a woman, and sometimes, like, she's like an adolescent, and she turns her head sometimes in a way that makes her feel like wise and knowing and sometimes like completely almost not, I don't want to say brainless, but um, naive kind of, I don't know. There's oh, so, yeah. so much nuance to that. Yeah. And then him playing like Sheen playing often because primarily they're your two characters that you're watching the entire time. I mean, they're the principals and they're in almost every single scene. I think. Yeah. It could be in every single scene, at least one of them. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It, M- Malik's direction is i mean i'm I'm a sucker for that midwest sky anyway. like like that open, lonesome, almost like steel blue, like darkening cloud, I don't know, hurricane or tornado weather sky that like you get like over like the flat plains of whatever the midwest. Like, when a director, like, really captures that, it's it's such a powerful backdrop to just, like, people, like, emoting. And there's the scene where they're standing in the flat fields, like, when they kill um, uh, Colton or whatever his name is, mm-hmm. um, where they're... I think Sheen is, like, on the left, looking over his right shoulder into the distance, And SpaceX is on the right looking over her left shoulder into the distance. And their eyes are like going two different directions, like, but towards the same thing that's behind the camera. And they're just silhouetted against like this, this like complete sheet of like blue gray sky. And it's like this so. I don't know, they feel so immense and like they fill the screen. And like at that point in time, you know, you've seen them. Like you've seen him kill like numerous people at that point, And it's just mm-hmm. like it makes them feel like we, we 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 make fun of um Peter Jackson for his quote unquote like epic cinematography with like the sweeping shots and the long tracking and the boom shots and like this is one shot of two people and it's more epic in terms of like just the feeling you get looking at it than any like giant Whatever cinematic crane pan over a mountain could be. So, and this dude is 27 years old, directing this shit. Like, it's crazy yeah. that somebody that young could have, like, that much just power and certainty in himself in the way that he was filming stuff. And, and you know, like the Rushland and, like the Black Hills of fucking North Dakota, like all that stuff is just captured so perfectly um, by Malick and just brilliantly like character portrayals by Sheen and uh, Spacek, and I don't know, it's just um, like I don't even think that I've done it any justice really, like in terms of like, I think you need to see Badly to understand like how bad good. Yeah. Um, and really crazy that Terrence Malick. Like, I don't know if he ever lives up to this level of um, greatness again. Like in the rest of his career.
0: I mean, the closest he comes to out his filmography so far is Days of Heaven, right? And
2: maybe medium cool. I, I I like Days of Heaven a lot, but I don't think Days of Heaven is as good as Badlands. Um, I I would say Days of Heaven and medium cool to me, or um, that's
0: that's Waxler.
2: Oh, Waxler, you're. Right. I'm sorry, Days of Heaven. I like the New World, but not as much.
0: Right. Um, you're not, you're not a know. fan of the Thin Red Line, right?
1: Well,
2: it's just too long. It's too long and too me. Like, it's definitely not... Um, it's definitely where the parts are greater than the sum, maybe? Mm -hmm. Like, there's some really... So there's a scene in Thin Red Line where um, the one group of soldiers is trying to take a hill, I think. Um, So they're fighting to, like, make their way up this hill, and it's... Again, it's one of those things where um, Malik just... The color of the grass and the soldiers fatigues, and then the sky, like, you know, sort of framing all of it um with like the the inherent violence of like a gunfight like it's a pretty brilliant theme but then you've got like just some really boring ass like meandering shit i don't i wish that movie was a half hour
0: (laughs) right i i don't i don't i can't do it i think you did you did well frank like i this is a movie that needs to be experienced rather than described um both in the artistic nature of like the direction, like the cinematography of the acting and just the story in general. Like you you can't have this story without these two actors and it's just, uh, you have to experience it. I think. Um, And I didn't, as much as I agree with you that this is the best movie out of these five movies, I just found that I didn't have a lot to say about it other than how beautiful it was and, like, how good the performances are and, like, how, you know, I mean, Sisica, it's basic and, like, she's so good in that, like, you know, and then Martin Sheen, like, who I knew from so many other roles, like, growing up. And then, like, going back, like, when I was, like, 20, I think, and seeing this or something like that, and then going back and seeing this, like, is, like, a totally different person compared to the roles that I saw him when I was young. Um, so if, if you like Martin Sheen, if, like, you know, you're, like, a fan of, like, things like the West Wing and stuff like that, like, go back and, like, check this out. Like, it's, like, this young role of him playing this, like, you know, greaser, you know who's turns into a killer, like based off of his dissatisfaction and with society. I mean, and then it's basic playing this role where it's like, she's like dead inside almost like it, it all of it very much reminds me of, I have brought Sam Shepard up so many times in this podcast, but it re- very much reminds me of Sam Shepard stuff like, you know, um, buried child and, True West and Fool for Love, like that Midwest, like, you know, idea of like this is supposed to be a Horatio Alger story where um, you know, everybody like, you know, ends up okay and it's like this can do spirit, and everything is actually just fucking awful and terrible. Um, which is very much like David Lynch, too, like in Blue Velvet and a lot of those kind of things it feels very reminiscent of that um like this movie but as i was doing some research on it the one person i wanted to point out here is jack fisk um he ended up marrying and is still married to this day sissy spacek out of uh, with this movie and he is a production designer and art director for various movies. And if you look at this guy's filmography and what, what a production designer does basically is like, is this kind of like logistics coordinator between so many different departments. Um, art directors do a similar job, slightly different, but it's like, they work with like, you know, like schedules, budgets, like staffing and stuff like that. And they work with the concept artists and like the lighting designers and the costume designers and the set designers. Like it is this like go-to role and this guy's fucking filmography, like this is his first like n- popular movie, I would say, like and it's popular, maybe you know, it's like well respected movie. Um, but as you look at this dude's filmography, like he does carry a, uh, a few years after this. Uh, he's an actor and a racer head, but it's like then he does all of Alex movies. He does Days for Heaven and you know Thin Red Line and Tree of Life and all that kind of stuff. But he also works on. The Straight Story with David Lynch. He works on Maholland Drive with David Lynch. Um, New World, you know, with um, uh, uh, Malik again. There will be Blood with P.T. Anderson. Um, the Master with P.T. Anderson. The Revenant with um, um, And now he's working with Sorsese, like coming up on Killers of a Flower Moon. Like, this guy, like, it's fucking incredible. <laughs> yeah, there were
2: some horror movies too from earlier really in his career that he was art director on that are pretty good. Cool
0: that are good. Oh, Messiah so, of Evil. Messiah I have, of Evil. I've seen that. Yeah.
2: Production designer on Phantom of the Paradise, which I think is a pretty yeah. Fantastic
0: cause movie. I, I noticed that because that's the writing team that uh, wrote um, uh, American Graffiti and uh, Temple Doom. Um, uh, Willard. Willard, Yuck. Yuck and Gloria Cats, yeah. I recognize their names. Oh, and Duck, too. <laughs> um, but yeah, um I because I, I didn't really have like much to say other than just like, you know, so good acting, so so beautiful, great cinematography. Like I started like just doing some research and I found this guy, and it's like, Jesus. Like, this guy is like amazing. Like <laughs> Like it it's like pretty the, impressive, like these unsung heroes sometimes that like we never focus on, I think, like in some of these films that because I don't do that deep in terms of like who's on the crew, right? Like, you know, I don't pay attention much of that except for cinematographers sometimes. Um, but it's like I just like found this guy only because I saw that it was referenced that he married to space space space, tech, right? yeah. Yeah. yeah and like it's like, holy shit, like this guy's fucking incredible. Um so yeah, I mean without us without a doubt, the like objectively, I just think the best movie on this list. And um I saw this in film class for the first time. I think I was 20. Um uh uh one of my teaching mentors, like Craig Frischworn, like showed this in his film class. Um and I thought it was and i got to see it kind of on a big screen like because of the room we were in and it absolutely captivating um then and i wanted to make sure that i watched it this time like on my you know whatever however big my screen is i have no idea but it's like i rather than my ipad where i watch most things and um i made sure to watch it on that just because i wanted to see that on a bigger screen again and um yeah if you haven't seen this just just please watch it like it's 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 such a good movie.
2: <laughs> you got to rent it, but it's definitely worth it for three ninety nine. That it's going to cost you on Prime. So yeah, yeah, absolutely, like, indubitably. Yeah. All right. So you so think yeah, we? Do
0: so you think we have a third one? You think we have a third one? Like some. I mean, on? I was
2: just scrolling through them. I had five more that I could talk about. Okay,
0: for all right,
2: okay. An hour and a half. So
0: I night think it might
2: night, night Moves on those. was Night Moves in the seventies. You know, I yes. Night Moves
1: What. How do you?
0: Come on, you, you just don't. You just don't want to put Hackman on another list because you're trying to you're trying to stymie the motherfucker so he can't pass David Warner. David Warner will always be
2: number one on my heart.
0: <laughs> That's fine. He just won't be number one on the podcast <laughs> well, I can make that. <laughs> we still got time. Ban for him, like you know. Is that gonna happen. Uh, in a couple, couple, well, something. Oh spoilers. Okay. Whatever.
2: Let me tell you some. So I did my top fives of seventy-one, ninety-one, and two thousand one. Yeah. And I think you and I were talking about this, and I said that I thought that eighty-one was going to be like, like that had to be like the number one year, mm-hmm. dude. Fucking two thousand and one is mm-hmm. crazy. Yeah. Ninety-one right. is crazy. 2001 was, like, I think, like, 16 movies where I was like, oh, no, that got to be on
0: the list. Yeah, Frank sent me, like, his, like, early, like, list of all the good movies. And it, those things are tough. Like, I, I don't envy you at all. I already like them. What? Oh, yeah.
2: You, like, sent me that last night. I know, did I have shit to do today at work for, like, two hours, so I just went through it. And forced myself. <laughs>
0: All right. Fridays are like I was trying to build it up, Frank, and like you know, there's, there's this difficult decision. You're just like, eh, I just did in two hours." Well, because
2: it. that's that's how I live my life. Like, I don't want to like I don't like to agonize over things. You know, it's just at some point you just got to decide. On something. to fucking decide. It's fine.
0: That's true. I, I I do agree with that.
2: When we start the podcast, you'd be like, "So was there anything else that could have made the list?" And I can still like,
0: you know. Talk about you the might, other like 11 yeah. movies that didn't make the list, right? Exactly, right? All right, oh, look at my
2: taste, blah blah blah. That's what it be.
0: So, here's the crazy thing, ultimately, though. And this, I'm done with the 70s at this point until two and a half years from now. Um, well, you got like a month and a half
2: from now, we got to talk about
0: 1971. So. Oh, no, I just mean the 70s crime. Sorry, oh, gotcha, Um, gotcha. I, I so, I think this list is almost just as good as the, the first list that you made.
2: I'm not going to lie. I think this list is better. I think these are better movies, like, top the bottom. Oh, or at least, least like, it's
0: just as comparable. Right. that That's what I, I think that's what I'm trying to say. Is, like, the killing of a Chinese bookie is, like, like, okay, Clute, I think, was number five on your list at that point. And it's it like, was. I think Clute's better than...
2: Like this for me?
0: Yes. Yeah, that's true. Um, French Connection was number one on your list. It's right there with Badlands to me. Sure. I'd agree with that. Um, I think Friends of Eddie Coyle was number two on your list. And it's like, with Mean Streets, it's like they're completely different movies. But I think but you right, know what? right there... But they're the same, like spirit, because they're both sure. about like
2: different filmmaking styles. The, but the also ran criminal that isn't quite ever going to be up to
0: snuff to be like a like a real made man. Sure, but yeah, you, you also don't get that shot in Boston Garden or whatever. Like you know, I mean, but um, like oh my god, that scene. Oh my, god. it's so good. Um, so good. You know, um. I think The Killing of a Chinese Bookie was probably three on your list. And it's like, again, The the Killing of a Chinese Bookie is so fucking good. And like, honestly, think about the camera work in that movie and compare it to like The Long Goodbye at times. And it's like, how fucking, like almost eerie is that at times? Um, About that voyeuristic look into like, you know, a world. And then The Day of the Jackal at number four compared to... I, I... it's like right there it's all right there like i mean like like and i'll be fascinated to see at some point with you doing a third list it has to be like lesser but i think but who knows
2: yeah i mean in in terms of well we've never talked about the godfather either so
0: if you know what i mean you, you you told me that was a gangster movie and not a crime movie but um I can change my, my <laughs> you can change your mind. So, can I ask you one last question here? Huh? Is yes, China is China? Oh okay. oh oh! Thank you. <laughs> um, is Chinatown the best movie that we've talked about in crime movies from the nineteen seventies? So you've had you've had um, the French Connection and yeah. Badlands as number one on these two lists. Is Chinatown better than those two movies?
2: I mean, Chinatown may be one of like. The five finest movies ever made honestly i don't
0: mm-hmm.
2: it's really really difficult to not include chinatown on like the best of whatever any genre that it could touch so right. if we were in a like in a vacuum or whatever we would never talk about any of these movies separately you know chinatown is number one on this list
0: okay uh, that's all i was asking
2: Chinatown so- is the absolute most brilliant melding Chinatown is is the ideas that Altman is touching on in the Long Goodbye perfected and expanded
1: mm.
2: in terms mm. of the, the gumshoe so out of his depth that his normal techniques and his but without like the ironic bent of yeah. the Long Goodbye where it's like played straight. And he still is so out of his depth Well, today. it can be played straight though because it's set in the forties, right? Right, right, right. Set in the forties, but again, like, well, you know, long before, With longer. With modern perspective, right? right?
0: Like, yeah. Right. I don't know. I, Chinatown is Okay, so since you give me a second question, um at some point there are certain movies that we've talked about. Because I just watched and it, it took me over the course of two nights to do it because i watched other movies before it but um i've watched the shining again for you know whatever the fucking 25th time or something in my life um or more who knows but um but there's certain movies like chinatown um like the shining like there's certain movies we've talked about already a long time ago probably like on this podcast and it's like I think at some point we need to revisit uh, sometimes we naturally revisit these things like right like you know like Jackie Brown we did like last week and sometimes on like the year end lists like they get revisited but there's some of these movies I feel like we need to do like deeper dives on at some point like yeah, I'm fine. Like, it's like spending, like, you know, even if we spent, I can't remember what we did early on, because I think it's, like, the first episode ever or something like that. But it's, like, when we talk about The Shining, it's, like, I feel like The Shining deserves its own episode. Like, I think there are certain things that deserve its own episode that we could probably talk about for quite a while.
2: Right. And I think that maybe, you know, like, we can do it in a third-man format or a... Yes, yeah, that's what I was going to wonder. Is like and Enth- the- Enth- Enth- watch or something, you know? Because we have um, our friend Orion, Willmaker super into The Shining as well. I think he considers sure. it one of his favorite movies of all time.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Um, I, I don't think I knew that, but I'm pretty sure that he I know said friend. That. I know a friend of the podcast, uh, Jason Easter, like also. I think feels that way, like as well. So I I feel like
2: I don't know that you can love film and not love. The Shining, and that's how I feel sure. about Chinatown. Like I think that if you appreciate movies, yeah, you will appreciate Chinatown and watching it, especially if you've yeah. never seen it before. And I think that's what that's what shows you that a movie is transcended, just being like whatever, like a movie, quote unquote, but is like true, you know, like yeah. art. I guess not to sound too yeah. pretentious, but yeah. I, seriously, like The Shining yeah. is so much more than just yeah a cinematic experience, and it's something that legitimately, like, you carry The Shining with you, and I think that you carry Chinatown with you. Yeah, I think that's true for, like, I feel that way about something like Ron, you know what I mean? Like, I can't see I can't see Cloud pass over like a hill Hmm. without, Hmm. like, immediately Mm -hmm. thinking of fucking, you know, King Lear, or whatever his name is in the movie. Um, Just Shevinley, like, stumbling down you know what i mean like it's such a
0: yeah i think there are certain like use of red and yellow that i see and ron crosses my mind yeah <laughs> you it's know the
2: shining like honestly there's certain there's certain shots that you can see in like television or movies and as soon as you see them even just for a second it's like there's the shine you know what i mean yeah Fuck, no like I, I swear to god like for there's some things where um, jack Torrance Frozen in the maze, mm-hmm. with his mouth agape and eyes like looking up a, into his yeah. skull, like as like it just—it's an image that just comes into my head, and like I think about it, and, for whatever yeah. reason, it—it's brief, but it's there, and so that's something that's like a part yeah. of my psyche, and that's definitely—you know—we're talking about Kurosawa and Kubrick and Polanski. Yeah, he was a fucking sex pervert <laughs> or a known sex pervert, I guess. Right. Um, I don't know. I don't know. It's yeah. It's the reason why we do this podcast because like there's nothing no more powerful media to me than film and nothing that stays with me as much as like a great Sure. A great fucking movie. So
0: Yeah. And and I think like this list um tonight is if you're looking for movies to watch, like and you like this certainly if you like crime, it's like this is one of the better lists that like we've yeah. ever had so uh, yeah so all right well thank you for listening um yep. tune in for the next two months the quick cage as a quick plug um frank uh you got to go downhill from here i think bro yep all
1: right
0: gonna do the thing have a good night everybody